The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is Ibadi X, and this is The Candid Frame. Issues revolving around race and ethnicity have been in the news a lot, especially during this political season. But it's always been a subject of photography, resulting in some of the most interesting and sometimes controversial bodies of work. At its best, this kind of photography goes beyond what you see and forces you to think about how you see others and even yourself. That's the challenge offered by Stacy Terrell's project, Backrub Bluin. Terrell's family heritage has its roots both in the Caribbean and in Europe, specifically around Scotland. In a series of self-portraits, she transforms the physical markers of her face, her brown skin and curly hair, and creates characters that people would automatically identify as white due to their skin tone, hair, and clothing. The work challenges people to think about how skin color influences and changes how we perceive physical characteristics and who we assume someone is because of the color of their skin. Uh, well, Stacy, welcome to the Candid Frame. I'm really excited to have a chance to sit down and talk with you. And thank you for making time for me today. Yeah, I'm really um, happy to be speaking with you today. Uh, your your project uh, is really, really fascinating. I mean, I've seen a lot of uh, photographic projects that deal with issues of race and identity. But yours is, is really phenomenal in terms of not only the ideas and the themes that you explore uh, with it, but the way that you're doing it. Why don't you tell us about the project Bakra Bluehead? And tell us what what led you to want to explore those themes in this particular way. Okay, um, I, I think that uh, first of all, like, the project itself is like a culmination of, say, my experiences um, living as like a, a black woman in North America, but then also being like a first generation Canadian. It, it, it's sort of a, a strange combination of things as to how um, eventually like this project gelled. Like in my artist statement, like I speak about, um, you know, like in school, uh, just these sort of projects or um, discussions that we would have the odd time on heritage and then sort of feeling left out of the conversation to a degree because the, the school that I attended um, was predominantly white. So I was one of the few non-white students and um, sort of, you know, like just having this sort of secret knowledge of knowing that you're more connected to them than um, maybe they or their parents actually think and how that's like a direct reflection on sort of the historical and genetic makeup of most people uh, who come from the Caribbean. But also, um, I guess like the, the approach as well is sort of to uh, sort of co-op this gaze that I feel that I'm under constantly. And, you know, there, there are a lot of projects that deal with race, identity, um, blackness in particular. And I guess my way of thinking of it was 
okay, like the I, I do want to talk about these things, but why not approach it from the other end? Why don't you uh, let people know what your background is, your cultural and because your parents are from uh, from the Caribbean, but your heritage goes mm-hmm. back to uh, so people can have a better understanding of what uh, what you're doing in the project. Why don't you give them a, a background of your family history? Okay. Um, both my parents are from the island of Nevis, which is a sister island to uh, St. Kitts and the Leeward Islands in the Caribbean. It was colonized. Well, first Columbus came to it, and then it was colonized by the Spanish, the French, and then the British at uh, different points. Um, and on top of that, um, I have a lot of like great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers um, and going further back that they're either from like Ireland, Scotland, or um, England, and I also did a genetic test a while back. It was coming up with like Scandinavian and all sorts of odd things in there. So, you know, it's, it really is like a mixed bag the further back you go. When you were growing up, how did you come, come to be aware of that heritage? Was that something that your family took a lot of pride in terms of its knowledge of its family history? Was it something that was a direct result of stories that were told, uh, images? You know, how, how did your awareness of the diversity of your, your heritage come, come up for you as, as a child? There were definitely like multiple sources. Um, first and foremost, uh, my grandfather, um, you know, he has very um, fair, almost white skin, and his name uh, was Cedric McKechnie Dean. And um, you know that in itself, that's a very uh, like if you were to see that name on paper, that's very specific as to where what part of the world you might think um, that they're from. So it was always this story of that he would tell of this father that he didn't know because. Um, what had happened, and you know, this is a typical story of the Caribbean and probably even um, with America, uh, where my great grandmother, I believe, worked um, as a maid or a cleaning woman um, in this one house for this plantation family, and um, I guess had an affair, uh, for what it's worth, with um, one of the members of that household. And uh, what had happened was that when my grandfather was born and he came out looking like a white child, uh, the lady of the house wasn't too thrilled about that. And they were forced to live on another side of the island. And um, so for him, uh, there was always this part of himself that um, he was never familiar with. Like he would sort of see it in passing, or I believe he said um, he had like a half sibling, a white half sibling that would um, you know, show up from time to time, but, um, you know, sort of always having this very distant knowledge that you're somehow related to these people. And um, I think especially for him, because his mother passed away when he was like, a, I'd say maybe about five years old. Mm-hmm. So again, like having those connections out there, but then also sort of being like an orphan in the world to a degree and, you know, sort of just moving around from there. And then the other uh, source that I would definitely say is my father, uh, I was telling someone the other day about, uh, you know, like back in the eighties, we'd have these telemarketers call and, you know, like selling these sort of like ancestry.com type products. Right. And, uh, one of them was like, Oh, did you know that the first Tyrell came over to, uh, North America from Ireland back in whatever. And my father would get very indignant with them and be like, don't you know that I am a black West Indian and that is absolutely not true. And all of these things like mm-hmm. take that opportunity to make sure that they knew that. But then also he himself being aware that further back in his family, because of certain features that either he had or his siblings had, that um, there definitely were white ancestors there as to where they're from exactly, not sure. Did you grow up early on the island itself or were you 
raised in Canada for the most part? Um, I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada. Okay. And so, yeah, I'm a first-generation Canadian, but, uh, you know, it was like almost like every other summer we would go back to the Caribbean for at least like a month um, or so. So I was very familiar from like a very young age uh, with down there. I know. I had a similar experience when I was young. I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, my family is Dominican. But um, I was not surrounded by people who looked like me or, or who looked like me who spoke the language like me. And when I first went right. to the Dominican Republic, I was probably around 12 years old. And then suddenly being surrounded by people who looked at me, looked like me, who talked Spanish, who ate the same food, was really sort of a, a sort of a shock to to my system because until then it had right. been also isolated to my family home or when I was visiting my cousins in other parts of Los Angeles, and it really was the first time where I started becoming aware, not only how different I was, but that there was a community that existed beyond my my sort of every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering about how those visits to back to the home country sort of helped to in, start developing your sense of who you were, not just in terms of what you look like, but in terms of the culture that you were coming from. Uh, I definitely say they were very important. Um, I was also lucky that, say, outside of my school, uh, Toronto itself has a very large um, West Indian community. So uh, my parents were very engaged with their cultural uh, association. But, um, you know, I I definitely was very lucky to... um, constantly as a as a child like go down to the uh, the Caribbean and be immersed in this world that it, to me it was magical um that my parents grew up in uh where you know like there's animals everywhere and there's so many people that you're related to like all on the same street and um just sort of like this this uh I guess like land where, you know, for generations, you know, that your family's from there. Whereas, you know, being sort of plunked in North America, it's like there's attachments there. And of course, like I was born in Canada, but it's, it's not the same. But um, I do realize also that I have a tendency, I think because I think back on the Caribbean so fondly um, that I romanticize it a little. Hmm. But um, I, I would definitely say that um, all of those experiences formed uh, a really uh, strong sense of pride Um and being from there. One of the things you talked about uh, in some of the interviews is about when when you're in school and um, mm-hmm. kids would talk about their identity and, and an identity that you shared in terms of, as you mentioned, in terms of your great-grandparents and such, but that when you came out with it, people doubted that you were telling the oh, truth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, and that sometimes you felt, you felt the need to be able to sort of keep that to yourself because of that reaction. T- tell me about that because that is... That's sort of a, a a strange, weird thing to, have to to feel like you have to do to be that self conscious to the point that you feel like you can't admit part of who you are. Well, it was it was surreal. Uh, I I think the when it really stood out for me, I think I was about eight or nine years old. I remember there was this one little girl that I was on the school bus with, and her parents had her in like Scottish Highland dancing and all of these things. And then um, I had told her, I was like, oh, you know, my my grandfather is half Scottish, and she called me a liar. <laughs> you know, to be called a liar, and first of all, uh, as a child, you know, you, you give a lot of um, credence to how you're... Um, 
your classmates sort of look at you and then my reaction, because already I, I already stuck out because of my physical appearance, was just to sort of draw back. Like I didn't say, um, I didn't argue back with her like, no, actually I'm telling the truth, but I just more sort of um, got quiet and kept it to myself because I was like, okay, like if this one child is calling me a liar, I don't want a chorus of them um, necessarily telling me that. Well, tell me about your your first transformation into one of the characters that you've portrayed in your in your photographs, and if you can describe what you, how you came to decide on that first on that first character. Um, it was it was a bit of a a slow evolution at first, um, just because uh, I was trying out um, techniques with the makeup and these types of things. But um, I always sort of had in the back of my head, I guess. Uh, like an upper middle class uh, white person that either like th that is sort of like this composite of a lot of the ones that either like through my daily life and life experience have sort of come into contact with. Um, but that, that moment where um, all of these elements kind of came together and, you know, getting the makeup right and then putting on this wig and seeing this transformation, it was, uh, it was so odd and it's still odd every single time um, that I do it. And uh, part of it is because subconsciously, even though I know that it's me, I'm, I'm looking at a stranger in the mirror and then thus like my, my, my brain sort of flips into this mode where I'm, I'm viewing myself like that. And I notice my mannerisms get a bit different and um, it, it's so strange. Like if you, I've had like a, a, a spectrum of um, thoughts every time I've done it from like, oh, that woman isn't half bad looking, isn't she? It's a, and, <laughs> and, you know, that it takes me doing that to myself for me to sort of, you know, like just in passing view myself that way or um, – and it's 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 very odd because um also it's like I get to sort of try on this identity that I like there's there's certain I know the buzzword right now is like privilege that comes along with it but you know like there's there's a certain um uh, you know like a laundry list of things that um you get to take advantage of if you look a certain way mm -hmm. in particular situations in society and uh, to just sort of try that out for a couple seconds it's it's very jarring I you, would say you've mentioned that. Um you know, when people look at you, typically they look at first your, your sort of skin tone, but that there are some mm -hmm. physical features that uh, are probably that uh, are you can probably tra uh, trace back to your European heritage, mm -hmm. and that somehow that that gets revealed as a result of you sort of changing your your skin color. Um, right. What what were some of those things that you discovered that you saw differently just as a result of doing that yourself? Well, one of the first things is that uh, the shape of nose that I have. So from viewed front, front, uh, sorry, like straight on, um, you know, it, it looks basically like sort of like a generic um, African nose. But then from the side, uh, the the bridge, like it's it's sort of crooked and in a way that it, it's not um, – like I, it, it, I could never really figure out like where that's from. And then also certain things about my bone structure. And, um, when the makeup gets, uh, you know, put on and sort of dialing back a certain physical characteristic, like things like that really tend to, um, uh, pop out at me that, uh, and just even I've had some people say, like, say even the shape of my eyes and whatnot, though, I think that they're pretty, um, African in appearance. Uh, that just all, all these things sort of come together where this, you can, you can just start to see that there's something else going on there. And each, each of these characters is, uh, you, uh, not, it's not just about changing the skin color. You, 
you create the characters by the change in hair in terms of the costume that they're wearing, the setting uh, in, in, in some cases. Tell us about all those choices. Do you sit down? Because you say that you really have a clear idea of who this person is. It's not like there's some sort of generic, you know, white characterization of, of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me of that. Do you sort of discover that as you experiment with all these different attributes that you suddenly discovered? Or do you have a clear idea of who this person is? And then you start building you know, the, the creation based on uh, an assumption that you've already sort of created in terms of who this character is. I, I think a lot of the, the characters, uh, I, I look at a lot of uh, old painting or society magazines. Um, I also look at like town and country magazine and, and sort of like, you know, it, it's a specific vision, I guess, of whiteness is what I'm portraying that is maybe more attached to like upper middle class and um, r- richer um, economic categories. Uh, but but it, it, And a lot of um, like old photographs. Uh, for some reason, those really resonate with me. And um, I think part of it also is that, you know, it's like part of the images that I cre- uh, create, you know, the posing is a bit stiff and things like that. And that's sort of done on purpose because I wanted that the viewer is aware of the fact that the subject is aware of being observed. And um, that, to me, is very prevalent when you look at a lot of old paintings and old photographs, and that's because um, the amount of time that people had to uh, stay still, especially in the case of like old photographs and things like that. So, so that's a bit of where I'm drawing that from. But in terms of the costuming and things like that, um, it's it's a mix of like both like what I'm seeing in those pictures and paintings, but. Also, um, d- different uh, things that then I add on from there. Like I usually start with probably like an age group or like a type of person, say, particularly with, you know, whether they're, I'm like, this person's like a young mother and she'd probably have um, a couple children and she'd probably be dressed like this or probably participating in these types of activities. And then those activities sometimes will dictate what gets added uh, to the picture. It, it seems like a care plays a big role in that transformation. Tell us, tell us about that. Uh, definitely. I just remember, you know, my mom is always saying your hair is your beauty. And I think that, um, you know, um, black women tend to uh, use hair, especially like as an expression of self. What I found fascinating, just even going out and, you know, purchasing um, some of the wigs that I've used is that, uh, you know, I'm always buying them from black hair shops. And to a degree, they're an interpretation of white hair but then by the styling and the color the color it's um they're purposely made to be desired by black women and then wanting wanting to sort of have that uh look and I, i feel that um also just the there's something just so at least for me, it's a bit like visceral, this hair, like this big flowing hair and, um, you, know, you know, these associations that sort of go along with it in terms of femininity. Did you have any trepidation about sharing the work initially when you started creating it? Definitely. Um, you know, it's like most artists, what, what I make, it's, I make it for myself first and then, um, you know, I display it and I want people to see it. But at the same time, Definitely with this project, I was very hesitant at first because, you know, it's it's deeply personal, but it's also um, tackling subjects that make people feel very uncomfortable, you know, and, it, and it's also, um, it's not pretty necessarily, um, a lot of the history that's involved with these things. 
you know, I, I have to say for the most part, the response has been, uh, you know, pretty good or that it's sort of uh, initiated discussions. But um, there are people that they have a very visceral reaction to what they're seeing and that um, then there's certain associations I um, made, or sorry, certain assumptions made about me in particular mm-hmm. as to why I feel the need um, to do something like this, which I have to say have been pretty negative. So what are some of those comments that you're getting from people who start questioning, you know, the impetus for, for uh, on your part for, for the project? I think that by uh, trying to pick apart blackness, you know, in a bit of a novel way, I think people think that I'm questioning my own security and my identity as a black woman and that it has to do with, and you know, you've seen examples of this even recently in the media with sort of like a self, self-hatred in terms mm-hmm. of how it is that I look, with, you know, like this trying to um, almost like obliterate the African features that I have in order to, the, you know, it's sort of blackness at the cost of whiteness. Or sorry, whiteness at the cause. <laughs> like for, um, you know what I'm trying to say. I'm no, sorry I got about you. that. <laughs> yeah, so I have to say like that. And then also uh, this very dismissive sort of, uh, well, she's t- you're not saying anything new. Like everybody knows that. And actually not a lot of people know that. Black people are more than aware of that story, but we make up a very small percentage of the population worldwide. And it's sort of one of those things. It's just sort of um, kept within the community to a degree. But, you know, it's something that I feel that like everybody, it should be common knowledge. As you started taking the work out there, either to, you know, mm-hmm. for people that you wanted to see about maybe exhibiting the work or, or just simply to get their feedback, um, what were some of the initial reactions that you got uh, to the work from not just, you know, the, the average viewer, but, but for people who, you know, who work primarily in the world of, of, of fine art? I would say a lot of the feedback was uh, really good. I think there there is like an appreciation for what it is that I'm trying to do and how it is that I'm trying to discuss it. Um, I'd say that there's certain po- pockets of the art world that are more receptive to it um, than others. And I think that that's also because like visually it doesn't fit into a particular style necessarily of um, what's going on with a lot of contemporary art or that and and specifically I'm talking about um, I guess like African Canadian or African American contemporary art in terms of uh, sort of the archetypes or um, sort of visual cues that are being used because because it's discussing whiteness and its relation to blackness I guess Let, let's talk about sort of the tech uh, the techniques behind what you're doing in terms of lighting and what you're doing in in Photoshop can you tell us a little bit uh, about that. Yeah, so uh, in terms of lighting, I'm doing a studio setup um, using Profoto 7A 2400-watt packs. It's a pretty basic setup where I'll have... uh, I'll have a large softbox as my fill, and then I have a beauty dish with a grid and a sock on it as my key light, and then just light the background separately. Just, you know, like bring in the odd little rim light or whatever to sort of separate out the subject a bit more. Um, so that, that's the basic uh, setup that I use. And then um, in Photoshop, you know, it's like I'm, I'm doing all the basic, um, like sort of retouching, dusting type of things. And then um, I work a lot with the uh, like liquify tool, like very subtly, because it is all about like the subtle changes in the subject, as well as um, different like masking layers uh, in order to um, just lighten the skin tone naturally. 
um, as opposed to just like completely desaturating it or yeah. it's something that's like very obvious like that. Was, was there a lot of uh, hit and miss in terms of you finally coming down with the technique that worked in terms of what you're trying to do with the skin tone? Definitely. Um, you know, I was reading, um, well, trying to find a tutorial. I actually did try Googling, like turning um, black skin white and found all sorts of bizarre uh, things. But I found that um, the makeup tutorials were the most helpful and also speaking to a couple of retouchers. So it, it, it had to do with um, sort of like um, different like screening layers. And, um, you know, you can do like a I think it's it's not the motion blur. It's just kind of like a, a light like blur layer that you can sort of just to um, obscure blemishes. Uh-huh. That gives you like a nice palette to sort of work from, and then you can like build it up from there. You you talked about how how it sort of has a sort of odd look to it. Is mm-hmm. that part and parcel of as a direct result of the technique techniques that you had to apply in order to make that conversion of the skin tone, or is that partly sort of an intentional in terms of the look that you're going for? I wouldn't say that it's necessarily intentional, but um, a lot of it also has to do with the makeup itself. Uh, So when you start with a base of like, uh, it's sort of like pancake style makeup. So it's not translucent the way that sort of like when we look at anybody else's skin where you can see little veins and other things going on Mm -hmm. under the surface. And then once you do bring those layers into Photoshop at different opacities, um, it sort of blocks it up even more. And I, I think that then like that's what sort of results in a bit of like an odd look, which to me it adds to it because I'm not necessarily going for realism, so I can take some artistic license with uh, some of the elements. Oh, very cool. One of the great things about having a Squarespace website is that you are never locked into just one given look. Once you choose a template, you have the ability to change it in virtually any way you want, and all with incredible ease. But even better, if you want to completely transform your site, you don't have to start from scratch. You can simply choose another template and try it out for size without losing anything that you've already created. Now Squarespace has made that process that much easier with its Squarespace Local Development Server. The new server allows you to locally preview changes made to the template code rather than testing changes on a live website. Not only does this enable new ideas to be tested in a much more efficient way, it allows multiple editors to simultaneously collaborate on a Squarespace website. It makes updating and improving your website that much easier. Try it for yourself now. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. In, in looking at yourself so differently, you know, with these characters that you create, how does that, how does that influence or change the way that you see others? Like when you're walking down the the street, like especially in cities like New York, mm. where you get to see, you know, the hodgepodge, the whole mix of humanity that's that's out there, has as a result of you working on this project, how has that shaped how you look and see other see other people? 
Definitely. Um, I think it's, it's like, I've always sort of been, you know, like subconsciously uh, observing people, but I think profoundly, um, the more that, the more that I work on um, the types of projects like this that I've been working on, um, I, I can't get over the fact of just how the closer I look at people's faces, just how connected we all are. And I, I definitely have grown like an even greater appreciation for the diversity of features, but at the same time, just how, um, you know, we, we aren't really that much removed from each other. Um, you study at the Ontario College of Art and Design. You study photography there. Mm-hmm. When, did you do, when did you discover that photography was really going to be what you wanted to do in your life? Did you discover that as a result of going there or did you have, already have a clear vision that photography was what you wanted to practice? Uh, I already had a clear vision going uh, into Ontario College of Art. I had started taking photos when I was really small. My father always had a camera around. In high school, it was one of those things that just sort of kept me out of trouble. Uh, You know, it's like any teenager, I had a lot of other things going on um, in my, you know, like everyday personal life. And that was the one thing that sort of kept me centered. Like I, I always had like a camera and I made a little dark room in my basement and, um, it just, it was, it was a way to also socially engage with people that, um, like it would, a camera sort of gives you an excuse sometimes to like come up to someone, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and, you know, like approach, approach them, um, being photographed. And so, um, by the time that then it was time for college, like I was already in love with the medium and uh, it just seemed like it was like a natural transition to then uh, you know study it in post-secondary education uh, for a lot of people they when they go there uh, when, go, when they go to college to, to study photography specifically sometimes it can be it can be the sort of the linchpin right from which the all the work that um, that they do begins but for others it happens after they're done you know, because right. somehow going out into the real world, that all of a sudden provides the seeds of what their life's work ends up being about. Uh, not, in, not specifically about this project, but just in general in terms of the, the photographic work that you did during school and after school. Can you tell us about sort of find, basically when you began to sort of find yourself, find your voice photographically, uh, whether it was then or subsequently, and and, and why that experience at the at in Ontario was so important? I think that, um, first of all, by studying photography, uh, you sort of get trained in a language and a way of um, looking at things a bit more critically than just taking a pretty picture. And uh, for me, towards the end of school, when I was creating, I got really putting a lot of thought and effort into a particular project in like a fine art context uh, was when um, that sort of cemented the fact that in some capacity, once I left uh, university, that uh, this is what I wanted to do. Um, And then when I graduated, what I found was that trying to make work, um, but sort of being disconnected from a photographic community, it sort of ground me down. And I hit a point where um, I actually kind of got a bit divorced from photography. And I think that in that separation where um, just because of like life events and then also how I was um, like feeling about and, and making less and less time to actually do something that like I, I absolutely loved and wanted to dedicate my life to like finally recognizing that loss is when I came back to it. And that's when things really started 
to gel for me. I was always wor- like, you know, like the, the images when I go back to the Caribbean and things like that, like th- those are things that I was always working on, but it wasn't until like I recognized that loss and then decided that I was going to make a wholehearted effort into re-immersing myself back into this medium and in f- fine art in particular that I love so much is, is when um, these these other ideas started to blossom just out of my mind in terms of with the self-portrait projects and things like that. Was, was part of that time just involved with you trying to just eke out a living and that, that the demands of that are what kind of took you away from focusing on your own work? Is, was that, is that part of the story? Um, it, it, it's part of it. And I think that what it was, was how I was approaching it as well, because, um, in terms of work, I was, uh, trying to get work and work in a commercial context mm-hmm. and then sort of saying to myself, then I want to be a commercial photographer. And that's how I would be a photographer going forward for the rest of my life. Uh, just because there's a, um, up until very recently, there was always this mentality that's like, you're either one or the other. Mm-hmm. It's like you either dedicate everything to being a commercial shooter or you're a fine art photographer and you need to go and get a job teaching photography or something like that to supplement um, what it is that you're doing. Once I realized that you know it, it doesn't have to um, be this way, which it took years and years and years and years of working in commercial photography in an assisting capacity to realize that even though the end goal was to become an independent like commercial photographer, that wasn't where the passion lay and Mm. that's again like where I started feeling that sense of loss for the fine art aspects of things that really sort of fed my soul which is then when I decided you know you can have a day job but like this is the 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 fine art um stuff is what's really important to me it's a hard situation to be in yeah right because you can because you are you're thinking about you know, your financial obligations. Yep. And you're thinking about, well, I need to make a living and I need to do this. But in order to be able to really pursue what your, your passion is, is that you have to be willing to let something go and, uh, and to have some sort of faith that things will work out. But it, it's frightening being in those moments. And I think that's often what keeps people from making those leaps of, of faith. What do you attribute your ability to finally be able to make that choice rather than, you know, to still, rather than still just like plow through and trying to make something that wasn't working and and trying to make something that's not working work? I think by nature, I am pretty stubborn. So there was always sort of that (laughs) nugget of, um, you know, just kind of wanting to do what I wanted to do anyway. But again, heeding the advice of, and, you know, for obvious reasons, like what makes the most sense, like putting food on the table, supporting yourself. And um, how do you build like a career that makes, I guess, sense? I always like, I do have like a deep seated um, faith in in things working out, but at the same time, it, like you just said, it, it's hard when reality really starts coming up in your face and you're, you're faced with, do I choose this or do I choose that? And I think in my case, you know, it was like, I, I made a bit of the wrong choice in terms of ignoring the more artistic side of it and going mm-hmm. for the more practical commercial side of things where you can make a more straightforward living. 
But ultimately, then just uh, realizing that I had to sort of go with my gut. And and what were some of the decisions that you made that really helped you finally sort of bridge, make that make that leap and start succeeding in the ways that you had wanted to? I, I think a large part of it was also not being afraid to actually try out things. So, you know, how else would I, I really know that you know, being a wedding photographer isn't my passion or, um, you know, just being a full-time still life shooter isn't my passion. It wasn't until actually like assisting on those shoots or going out and, you know, like working for different companies, sort of doing these types of things, did I find out that that wasn't the right fit for me? Because all of us can sort of sit there and think about the possible outcomes of things, but sometimes the practicality of actually trying out uh, different things and, and, and not being afraid to try them out um, is just uh, priceless. Mm. Are you represented? Is that part of how you are, you know, creating a living for yourself with your fine artwork? Right now, I am with a gallery in Toronto uh, called General Hardware, um, but I'm not exclusively represented by anyone. Uh, and, and I think that, like, sort of the age that we live in with social media and all of these things have allowed me to, you know, have my work sort of get out there and other people bump into it um, over the internet. Uh, but I, I predominantly make my living um, just working in sort of like production aspects of photography and because I have like set hours and I'm able to sort of mold my schedule um, around that. So basically I'm a free agent. Oh, okay. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so you've been living in New York, you said uh, before for about 12 years, mm -hmm. but you still uh, go back to, to Canada. Is that true or a complete New Yorker at this point? I definitely do go back to Toronto uh, a couple times a year, but I do consider myself a New Yorker now at this point. <laughs> so tell us about that, that move, because, you know, as you said, you were you know, born and raised in, in Canada, and New York is certainly a, a big hub for photography, but it's a tough city. It's a very tough city. <laughs> so tell us about the choice to, do, uh, to make that move and, uh, and how, you, how you manage it. Uh, I, I think what was the catalyst for me um, wanting to change and then trying to um, transition to New York was that uh, I, w I was working at a one-hour photo lab in the mall in the suburb where my mother lives and in finding that incredibly depressing and the fact that, you know, it's like I had a degree in this subject matter and I couldn't really get that much work in it except for, you know, like helping with uh, weddings on the weekends and things like that. And then I really sat and thought about like, okay, like where, where's the action at? Like, where is it really happening? And, you know, it's like New York definitely comes up in that along with like Paris, London, um, Los Angeles, and like those sort of like major uh, hubs. It really like that feeling of just feeling like not even that you're not going anywhere, but that it's like you can just sort of coast along like this for ever just willing to be uncomfortable. And, you know, I started, uh, I, I started trying to contact photographers that I could intern for. And, uh, you know, like one got back to me and I just kind of um, went for it. And, you know, from the time that I got down here, uh, one thing just sort of led to another. And um, that, that really sort of drove me forward in my career in the photo industry. Rejection is a big part of being a photographer. When you choose to put out really personal work like this series has been, mm -hmm. um, you can. It's it's really hard not to put your heart on your sleeve. How do you sort of gird yourself up for for when you're putting your work out there, either 
not just in social media, but if you're doing a portfolio review or you're going to someone to represent, you know, to look at your work, how do you sort of contend with the with the fact that you may sometimes hear things that you aren't expecting or don't like? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's it, it's one of those things where um, I, I sort of equated. It's pretty similar to being um, like an actor or something like like a another profession like that where you have to know if you truly believe that what it is that like you've you've done is good and that there is merit in it and that um you've created the work uh you know for yourself and that no matter what um someone else says that you're going to continue you know to to create images that that's a really good place to uh start from because if you're making imagery strictly based off of other people's feedback. And I think there have been moments where all of us, because of, you know, the multitude of rejections, whether it's for like grants or reviews or um, just even in a classroom setting, um, if, if you don't uh, just have that basic belief, you you end up uh, creating like in, things that are inauthentic and then also just probably wanting to stop altogether. Yeah. With the reaction to this, to this body of work, um, do you sometimes get concerned that you're going to be seen in a particular niche in terms of, and I, I think this is, I think this, this is something that's faced by a lot of photographers of, of color is that they mm-hmm. can be pigeonholed. Yeah. Into the photographer who only explores themes of race, uh, which I think is unfair to, to a large degree. But inevitably, 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 as an artist, you have to be sort of conscious of the fact that if you're exploring those themes, that that there's a risk that other people will restrict how they see you and your work. Uh, but how how much of that is is a concern for you as as an artist who may want to explore other ideas, other avenues of creativity? I sort of look at it, especially as like a black female artist, you're sort of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So you might as well just talk about and what you want to talk about mm-hmm. because, um, you know, it's like it's always going to be framed within that frame of reference uh, for the most part. So there, there really hasn't been any topic that I've like shied away from that I felt that like I – have wanted to discuss with my work. And just because I happen to be discussing it doesn't mean that there isn't something that's universal about it. And um, I think that that's what the shame is the true shame of being uh, pigeonholed uh, sometimes and put into these neat little categories, you know, like, oh, I'm an Asian artist and therefore I can only handle these things and those types of things. Like, um, and unfortunately, like, that's the world that we live in. But, um, I, I don't think that it, it should never be a hindrance because like if, if there is strong artistic merit and a strong message in what's being said, then that with certain audiences should like rise above that pigeonhole. Mm-hmm. What, what doors has the press and the awareness that this, uh, this project has created offered, offered to you? Like one interview or article is sort of like led to another and then there's like just um, shows in different venues. So right now, uh, you know, like I've done a couple shows in America, but mainly um, the gallery shows that I've done have been in Canada or in England or parts of Europe. And uh, that's that's sort of where those doors um, be, be get opened. And um, also being invited to 
you know, participate in different panels or, um, you know, be, being able to go and speak at a couple of schools and talk to students um, either about themes of race or just, uh, you know, just being a, a fine art photographer in general. Um, those have been very rewarding and th- those are definitely the most important doors that I feel have been opened for me. Have some of the people who have looked at the work, particularly young young people, have they come up to you after looking at the work and surprised you with some of the, the things that they've said or observed? I, w- I wouldn't say like completely shocked me, but I think uh, one of the most surprises that I found most recently, um, I was in Boston um, just giving a, a talk and um, this guy came up to me afterwards and he goes, you know, when, when I read the description and I went to your website and stuff, I thought you were going to be very angry. <laughs> and hearing you speak today, you know, like you just so sound so, um, you know, inclusive and, you know, in, enjoying what you're doing. And um, to me, that was surprising because like, I, di- I really didn't think that the tone of what I was saying was angry. This person was um, Asian, which isn't really that consequential to this discussion, but th- that I, I wasn't aware that um, it could, it could possibly read as, uh, you know, and I'm going to, it probably is like some angry political statement. It's just uh-huh. a statement. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think especially considering the, the state of racial relations and racial awareness currently, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I can see that a lot of people can read into the work. Completely. That has probably nothing to do with what your intentions were. But I, I wonder, like, because you've had the chance for the work to be seen outside of Canada and the United States, have you been able to discern any sort of differences culturally or as a result of people from different parts of the world looking at the work and, and, and seeing something much different than we might hear in the States? Definitely. Um, especially like within a European context and, um, I'm excluding England out of that because, um, you know, the British have like a similar history to North America in terms of like race relations and things like that. Um, that it's almost like there's a more, I I felt that, uh, like an openness, and um, they just sort of just kind of get it in a way that um, because they're they're not locked into these, uh, you know, these um, binaries of like black and white and that's what this means and that this is what this gets you in the society and this yeah. is what it doesn't get you in this society. It, it, they, they just seem to be, um, I think, like quicker to sort of buy into this. Yes, there are like other things, and I, th- I think that also because they're coming from like uh, colonizing countries, like that—that's sort of like the proud history of these places. That they're like, of course, you would find traces of us there. Like we were there. Um, versus with North America, where um, you know, like there is there is an unwillingness on a certain level to even want to get into these discussions because of the unrest they feel that would follow those discussions. Mm-hmm. However, like whether it's conversationally or physically or whatever it is. Have you ever taken these characters outside of the studio? Um, no, I haven't. <laughs> Tell me why. Why not? Um, I, I think that part of it is because, uh, I, you know, I, I do toy with um, with the idea of, uh, you know, some sort of like a video, like motion um, component to them. But because there are little tweaks that have to happen in Photoshop, mm-hmm. that it, it might not work as well. Okay. Or I haven't figured out like how to do that yet. I'm sure. I'm sure that's not the first time that someone's asked you that. Or has yeah. it? 
<laughs> yeah, like I and, and I almost think that it would be um I think it would also be very alarming for people like uh you know it's like um sometimes people look at these images and they're just sort of like oh there's something very odd about that person yeah. and then when you look at it closer you know, it's like that the skin isn't translucent, like it's very opaque. Uh-huh. And um, it just, uh, just there, there's a lot of things that are going on that like it reads as human, but you know, like our, our instinctual part of our brain, th- there's something about it that's like off that they can't put their finger on. And um, I, I think that uh, right now, like if I were to sort of bring it out into a more interactive um, environment that it might like change a bit, like what, what exactly it is that I'm doing. And it would take a lot more strategy, yeah. I would say. So uh, what's next for you? Um, I, I have quite a few projects that I'm working on. I'm definitely, uh, you know, going to continue in the vein of the self, self-portraiture, um, particularly uh, um, I've been working on a project of um, allegorical women. Uh, so women that um, represent countries in paintings and and um, symbolism and uh, sort of diving into um, these women as like the embodiment of nations and then how uh, this that plays into colonialism itself in terms of, um, you know, this mother figure, motherland that then the colonies are sort of the children of and the dysfunctional relationship to a degree that um, can occur. Uh, between them, or at least like that's sort of the motivation behind that project. And then um, there's a few others that are just uh, personal projects that I'm sort of wrapping up or that are ongoing that just more have to do with either my family or, you know, traveling to the Caribbean and uh, things like that. So there's definitely quite a few things going on. I look forward to to, uh, checking out at some point. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, I really love uh, Peter Hugo's work. I'm not sure if a lot of people are familiar with him. He, he just makes phenomenal images. He's out of, he's a white South African, but um, he photographs like um, everything from like Nollywood, which is, uh, you know, the Nigerian movie industry uh-huh. and, uh, and you see so many. Um, I think in pop culture, like people borrow from his visual style. Uh, you know, I've seen I've seen it in Beyonce videos and things like that. Like, just um, I, I would definitely recommend taking a look at his work. Cool. Well, Stacey, thank you so much for for making time for us uh, this morning. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, I was really happy to get to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Stacey Terrell for joining us at The Candid Frame. To see her work, visit her site at stacyterrell.com. And please remember that you do make a huge difference to our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Thanks to Maddie C. Bradford from the U.S., Uwen F. from Canada, Herr Pelle Plutz from Sweden, and Daniel Rock from Canada for their five-star reviews. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. You can contribute amounts of $2, $5, $10 or more, or anything in between on a monthly basis and help make a big difference to the work that we're doing here at TCF. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find the link in the show notes and the candid frame website. I'd like to thank all the people who've recently contributed to the effort, which include Owen Forrester, Crime Morris, and Wayne Baxter. You are really helping us to reach our goals for this year, so thank you so much. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. 
The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.